0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dead to Rights, Season 1, Episode 4, titled The Twin. Thank you for joining us today. We're pleased to be bringing to you D.J. McIntosh, the award-winning and best-selling author of The Witch of Babylon series, which includes, in order, The Witch of Babylon, The Book of Stolen Tales, and The Angel of Eden, all brought to you by Penguin Canada over the last few years. And of these three books, my favorite for the record is The Book of Stolen Tales. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book. I highly recommend all three. They're absolutely wonderful. They are antiquities thrillers featuring John, the New York antiquities dealer. And now for our readers on the run, I'm delighted to read to you The Twin, a short story by D.J. McIntosh, which first appeared in Thirteen, an anthology of crime stories by the Maydams of Mayhem, brought to you by Carrick Publishing in 2013. The Twin by D.J. McIntosh All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee and set darkness upon thy land. Ezekiel thirty-two, eight. The cathedral had survived other wars. He hoped it would prove a sturdy sanctuary for the one that lay ahead. Warm wind came in great bursts and gusts. The priest raised his hand to stop the fine ochre-red dust ever present in Baghdad from blowing into his face. A heap of refuse against the cathedral's front wall, stirred by the wind, caught his attention. Dirty plastic sheeting, the entrails of food packages and bags stuffed with the possessions of some lost soul were bunched up in a pile. The mound appeared to shift. Out of it emerged a gaunt tatter of a man. "'Father,' he called out, "'could you wait?' The man had a youthful voice but moved uncertainly, like an old person afraid of falling. A sweatshirt with the hood pulled up shadowed his face. Baggy pants all but fell off his stick-thin frame. Probably sick, Father Tomas thought sadly, a common enough sight in many parts of the city. Still, the fellow seemed out of place here, in the prosperous Carada district. "'a student fallen on harsh times, perhaps. "'Something unusual about the man "'caused a minute jolt of alarm, "'although the priest could not place exactly what that was. "'He reached into his pocket for a few coins, "'hoping they would be enough to send the fellow on his way. "'May I ask why you're here?' "'I feel better under the light.' "'A pale finger pointed toward a fixture "'fastened to the wall.' "'I've been waiting to see a priest for hours, Father.' "'And you are?' "'People call me Nico.' "'Well, Nico, let me go inside "'and see if I can find someone to help you.' "'The man grabbed the cleric's cassock with such force "'he almost tore the sleeve. "'Please, I've already waited so long. "'I need to talk to a holy person.' "'The priest recoiled.' pushing himself away from the man's sulfurous breath and grasping hands. He hurried up the steps and opened the heavy doors. Brushing his fingers with holy water, he made the sign of the cross and hurried down the central aisle. No footsteps followed in his wake. The cathedral was empty. Any other time he would have welcomed solitude, but the strange man outside had upset him. The city was tense and unsettled, people deeply afraid. Who knew how this atmosphere might set off an already unbalanced individual? Father Tomas took a seat in the front pew, facing the wooden communion table, and the simple altar draped with burgundy cloth. Below the crucifix, four tapers and tall candlesticks burned bright with flame. Together with candles in the wall sconces, they cast a warm golden glow over the church interior. He touched the Assyrian cross he wore, suspended from a chain of precise length, so it lay over his heart. He folded his hands in his lap, his feeling of serenity quickly restored by the calm tenor of the place. It reminded him of the gentle silence of being underwater. What a contrast this simple place of worship was to his beloved Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, Rome's only Gothic church, so named because it was believed, erroneously, to have been built over an ancient temple dedicated to the Greek goddess. His thoughts flew back to his many visits there. Bernini's statue of the elephant. "'carrying an ancient Egyptian obelisk "'in the Piazza della Minerva. "'Santa Maria's façade so plain "'one could easily pass it by without a second thought "'and miss the splendors waiting inside. "'Always upon entering the basilica "'he would marvel at its beauty, "'the soaring nave patterned with tiny gilded stars, "'its vaulted ceiling of a blue so intense "'it seemed made of sapphire.' The Maria Chapel, the magnificent high altar. Fra Angelica's ornate tomb was there and Michelangelo's majestic statue of Christ the Redeemer and Romano's Annunciation. He closed his eyes and murmured a prayer for the safety of his two sisters, Miriam, living with her family in Tikrit, and Leila, working at Al-Awaya, the children's hospital. A bony finger prodded his shoulder, breaking his reverie. He whipped around nervously to see Nico in the pew behind him. There had been no warning as the man came through the doors, no muffled sound of footsteps, no tell-tale scrape as he took his seat. "'I want to make a confession,' Nico said. "'I'm afraid confession isn't heard tonight.' The priest scanned the seats, hoping for the reassurance of a few more warm bodies, but saw only yawning rows of empty pews. I can't offer you confession anyway. This is not my parish. Please, Father, it would mean a great deal to me. What is your trouble? I've hurt someone, the person closest to me. Well, you're to be commended for admitting that you've taken a wrong step. "'None of us goes through life without making mistakes. "'Whatever harm has been done, I'm sure will be forgiven "'if you summon the courage to ask.' "'You don't understand. It's much worse than that.' "'Clearly the fellow was not to be put off. "'Perhaps the wiser path was to placate him. "'The cleric gestured towards a dark recess at the side of the cathedral. "'A small devotional area.' We can kneel together over there and pray. An edge of fear resonated in Nico's voice. No, I want to stay here, and my prayers haven't worked. This is most unorthodox. Come and sit near me, then. It will have to suffice. Nico slid onto the front pew beside him, keeping his head bent so the priest could not easily see his face. How long has it been since your last confession? This is my first. You're a member of the church? Nico nodded. This one? Yes, father. And you've received the sacrament of confirmation? Of course. Then I can't imagine how it could be your first confession. The man ignored this and repeated the ritual words. Bless me, father, for I have sinned. The priest shifted further away on his seat and bowed his head. Go on. "'Do you remember George Eunice, the pianist?' "'Certainly. The family is well known in the city.' "'I killed him.' "'Shock rippled through the priest's body. "'He strained to compose himself. "'Surely there must be some mistake. "'Perhaps this fellow was just desperate for attention.' "'George Eunice's death had been a great tragedy. "'A musical prodigy. "'He'd made a name for himself in America.' but had fallen ill and died on his last visit home to Baghdad. Nico smiled strangely to himself and said, "'George had too great a hold over me. "'I wanted to be appreciated for myself, not always outshone by him. "'I assumed the riches and acclaim he received would come to me, "'so I planned a horrible act. "'Nothing has turned out right. "'Now I just feel cursed.' I was told he died suddenly from a sickness. Father Tomas tried to recall the name of the disease, but his memory failed him. An infection, something that caused a very high fever. Meningitis, is that what they said? Yes, that's it, meningitis. I can't believe his doctors would be wrong about that. They put George in a dark hospital room, shut all the window blinds, and kept him absolutely quiet. Only his parents were allowed in. It gave me the time I needed, you see. What was he suggesting? That he'd somehow gotten access to the hospital room and ended Eunice's life? The man seemed restless. His hands shook and he couldn't seem to keep them still. He'd rub his jaw and fiddle with the hem of his sweatshirt. His nerves were completely shot, Father Tomas thought. He probably hadn't eaten a decent meal for days. Nico spoke again. They made it impossible for me to get anywhere near George. At first I found that agonizing. It was the only time in our lives we'd been separated, and it almost killed me. Then I realized the incredible opportunity it offered. I saw my chance and slipped away for good. The disease didn't destroy George. He knew I was never coming back, and he couldn't survive without me. A mental case, certainly. Father Tomas relaxed a little. There had been no killing, after all. Very gifted people like George Eunice invited obsessions from all kinds of people. But how would the two of them even know each other? George was from a well-regarded family his father a wealthy merchant, his mother a professor. They had a summer home on the Black Sea and a London apartment. It was difficult to imagine his path ever crossing with this poor ragtag fellow, let alone the two of them sharing any relationship. Nico mumbled something, then raised his voice. George and I were never apart, but the spotlight always picked him out. His brilliance, his good looks, his musical genius. No one ever stopped to think my quiet presence and support were vital to him. Who was this? A brother the family was ashamed of and kept hidden away? Possibly a twin? George had been on the short side and slim. In this respect, the man resembled him. No, it seemed unlikely. The priest knew the family well enough. "'A housekeeper's child, then? "'Someone who'd grown up alongside George "'and had persuaded himself they were on the same level? "'That made more sense.' "'I felt compelled to copy him,' Nico continued. "'George liked to practice music in the evenings at home. "'As a little ritual, he would light the candelabra "'and let me sit beside him. "'I could not read music, you see, "'even though my memory was prodigious.' Much better than his, really. I could play just by mimicking the movement of his fingers, or so I thought. But when I was alone and put my own hands on the keys, it turned out to be a total failure. He even took me with him across the ocean to the Jeweled School. What was he talking about? Jeweled School? When the cleric realized what Nico meant, he had to stifle a laugh. You mean Juilliard. "'Yes, I went to school there with him.' "'This was plainly a fantasy. "'He'd blown what was at best a slight acquaintance far out of proportion. "'The bond existed only inside his head.' Nico reached into the pocket of his bulky sweatshirt and felt for something. "'Could he be carrying a weapon of some kind? "'Father Tomas felt a sudden thrust of fear. "'It was disconcerting not to be able to see the man's features.' He wanted to get away and search for the right words to end their conversation gracefully. Such a gift as George had is rarely duplicated. We each possess capabilities God granted us, however humble. Better you should focus on your own talents rather than aim to be something you're not. You don't understand. I tried to strike out on my own, but George always pulled me back. "'It was like an invisible thread stitched us together. "'My son, I do sympathize. "'The grief of George's passing has affected you "'more than most, perhaps. "'I don't wonder at that, hearing how close the two of you were. "'But consider, the better part of your life is ahead. "'Don't give in to bitterness or regret. "'As to any mortal sin, you're blameless.' I realize you're experiencing remorse, but that's a long way from actually having killed someone. The tremor in Nico's hands spread to his whole body. He shouted at the priest, You're still not listening to me. I need to be forgiven. Father Tomas shuddered. The fellow was really disturbed. Nothing could be achieved by further talk. He rose quickly and moved away. Again, the sense of something bizarre, almost alien, about Nico struck him. When his gaze drifted to the man's feet, the reality of who stood near him hit the priest like a shockwave. He experienced a frozen moment of indecision. Then his thoughts clarified. He knew what he had to do. He walked up to the altar and extinguished the first taper, then the second As he reached for the third one, Nico said, "'What are you doing?' "'If the power stations are destroyed, we'll have no lights. We're desperately short of candles as it is.' The last flame sputtered out. He went over to a table holding votive candles in small blue glass receptacles, almost a third of them flickering with flames lit by parishioners. He put each one out with his fingers, wincing from the searing burn on his skin.' "'Those are people's prayers. You can't do that!' Nico cried. "'We have almost none left. They must be rationed, too.' The wall sconce candles were last. Father Tomas moved to the end of the side aisle and snuffed the first one out. Nico ran toward him. "'Don't touch another one. I know what you're trying to do.' "'These are not normal times. We have to take precautions.' The entire central square of the nave was now in deep shadow, so Nico could not cross to the aisle on the other side. The light along this aisle was rapidly dimming. Soon it would be gone. He could sense himself weakening. He thrust his hand inside the pocket and felt for the fat serrated steel blade of his knife. Nico stepped out of the cathedral doors, leaving the knife where it had clattered to the floor beside the priest's body. He drifted along a ribbon of illumination, spun by wide pools of light, rippling out from shop windows and apartment buildings. The bombardment of Baghdad that began early in the morning nourished and fortified him. He basked in great incandescent green phosphorus blooms, bursting into the sky and the long flares cast from fires that burned for hours. Their powerful radiance far surpassed the weak light he usually had to make do with. Nico's body strengthened and he felt filled with energy. Within a day, most power stations and transformers had blown up, the entire electrical grid collapsed. When the rain of bombs finally stopped, Baghdad returned to the state of a village in prehistory. A blanket of darkness fell over the great metropolis. With nothing left to sustain him, Niko faded to a translucent slip of grey and finally disappeared. A shadow may live without his master, But he cannot survive without the light. And that has been The Twin by DJ McIntosh, a beautiful story that appeared in 13, an anthology of crime stories by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing, 2013. I've been honored to bring you this story, and I want to now roll right into a contest question for you. To answer this question, simply go to our Dead to Rights Facebook page and look for this week's questions. And to answer this one, you will be entered into a draw for an Amazon gift certificate. And this question is, what was the name of the father? And it was Father Tomas, of course. So if you will go to the Facebook page and answer it there, you'll be qualified to win an Amazon gift certificate. Thank you. And now I'm going to bring you... Live, DJ McIntosh.
1: Let it rot.
0: Hi, Dorothy. It's Donna. Welcome to Dead to Rights.
1: Hi. It's great to talk to you today.
0: It's good to talk to you, too. I haven't seen you in a while. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about your Witch of Babylon series, which starts with the Witch of Babylon the Book of Stolen Tales, and finally, The Angel of Eden. And uh, it's a wonderful series. I really enjoyed reading it. And um, oh, thanks. I, I know from our previous conversations that you enjoyed writing it. But the research that went into that series was just uh, amazing and impeccable. And it led you into the heart of a true-life humanitarian crisis And one of the things that the uninitiated may not know about research for fiction is the emotional and intellectual toll it can take on the researcher. Can you tell our listeners how many hours of actual research were necessary to create the series, and how did you come to terms with everything that you learned about this war-ravaged country?
1: Well, I can't give you a specific on the number of hours, but it did take me something like seven years. The research took place over about a seven-year period. Wow. And a lot of scholars write historical novels, but they have the advantage of already having that body of knowledge, whereas I knew very little about Mesopotamian culture and history. So I had to sort of teach myself all about that. And just to take a step back, I didn't start out intending to write about Mesopotamia, Uh, I've always loved reading historical novels because I like learning uh, new information when I read, and uh, so I was thinking, you know, what can I, um, where should I start, what should I write, and I thought, well why not start at the beginning, and uh, so I went to the book of Genesis. And when I familiarized myself with the book of Genesis, and when I started researching that, it turned out that a number of the Genesis stories that we're all very familiar with actually had their origins in Mesopotamian mythology. So that's what took me to Mesopotamia. Then, as I was doing the research on the Mesopotamian culture and history, the Iraq War broke out. and the uh, the war in it and it was kind of like a eureka perhaps i shouldn't put it in that positive a sense but like a eureka moment in that here i had been reading about the sacking and looting of all those magnificent ancient mesopotamian cities and then all of a sudden the same thing was going on in real time,
0: oh, dear. and
1: it was it was quite um, uh, remarkable. And then, as you mentioned, I mean, with regard to the emotional toll, uh, it it really cut through me. I must say,
0: I know it really this
1: affected me um, when you think about the millions of innocent Iraqi citizens who have died or been injured or have lost their homes in the course of that absolutely dreadful, dreadful war and are still doing so to this day. Um, I just found that difficult to deal with. And I will add that um, I never have um, really gotten um, adjusted to that. Uh, I still find it something that's really quite heartbreaking, to say the least.
0: Yes, I've heard you speak on this subject before at, um, I don't think it was one of your launches, I think it was um, a gathering of authors, and I heard you speak, um, and at the time I was struck by how passionate you were in speaking on this topic, that's why I made that my first question, because I could tell that you were so moved by the research that you'd done.
1: Um, The The other thing, too, I might add there, is that It was obviously too unsafe for me to ever go to Iraq to do any research. So I had to rely heavily on all the accounts, the blogs, the articles written by the journalists who were there uh, firsthand. And over 200 journalists alone have lost their lives through the Iraq War. I I really feel immensely grateful to them in particular about... uh, being able to use their observations in order to help me write and um, without
0: responding. them without them, the general public really would have no idea, so they deserve all of our gratitude and I know that that's another point of passion with you, the unsafety of journalists across the world um, so I will ask you about that a little bit later too. I, I want to hear you talk a little bit about that because I know you have um you've studied that subject. But before we go to that, uh, I want to talk to you about the book of Stolen Tales, because to be honest, that is my favorite of the three books. I I don't know if I ever mentioned that to you, but in it, you steered your character into a land of fables and fairy tales, and you studied the history of these fairy tales and their possible prehistoric roots. Any casual listener might mistakenly think that the novel is based on whimsy, but it really isn't. It's based on these stories that we've told ourselves for thousands of years. It, they're deeply part of our culture. So how do you take such a weighty research subject and turn it into such a thriller that, that uh, forces people to turn the page? Because I could not put that book down.
1: Oh, that's great to hear. And actually, it happens to be my favorite, too.
0: I'm glad to hear that. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I just have I love loved that, that one from the minute I, I started it.
1: Um, well, I think that's the challenge for all writers of historical novels. I should say, I refer to my work as a historical thriller, but it is it. the subject matter is historical, but they're all set in contemporary times. Yes. Anyway, it's it's a huge challenge. How do you convey that information without, um, uh, you know...
0: Yes, without beating the reader TV over TV the head. Yeah, as my husband would say, beating the reader over the head with
1: knowledge. Exactly. I mean, or, you know, in the industry we call it the info dump. Yes, you know, how, yes. how do you um, avoid that? Mm-hmm. And I think there's you know, several ways. For one thing, you have to sort of, I find the, the subject matter so engaging. I just want to keep writing and writing about it. But you have to be pretty tough about what you include and what you take out. Yes. And there are many times when I almost feel that I've cheated the history a bit by not including more. But if you're trying to write an exciting uh novel that will keep people wanting to read you simply can't have it loaded with too much information the other other techniques i suppose are that if you have well-drawn characters whose professional life involves that subject matter uh, that that's helpful mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. fact necessary yes and in order to sort of solve or to follow along the mystery of the novel, uh, you need to make the plot hinge on a lot of these cultural moments or these historical truths, shall we say.
0: Yes. So yes. that
1: as people are going along trying to figure out what the core of the mystery is, they need to learn some of this. Uh, subject matter in order to do that.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. And as long as your character doesn't stand up and say, "As John crossed the street, he thought about the entire history, which I'll now explain to you." You know. Well, I, well, you know, the thing is,
1: the other challenge is that I've written those three novels in first person. Yes. So he can't sit there and say, "Well, I know that in you know." 60 BC, da, da, da. I mean, why would he say that to himself, right?
0: And there's definitely...
1: So that, that poses yet another challenge. Yeah. If you're writing in third person, it's easier to deal with that.
0: And you did the first person there very well, because um, people who are new to writing, they often have um, misconceptions about which person to use, whether they should use the omnipresent or whether they should use the first. The first really only works... If you have that empathy for your character that you can move with him through the scenes, and i and, and to the point where the reader doesn't even notice really that it's in the first person, and that's what I found with your books i mean they they were they were very close to omnipresent, of course in the first person, you're never omnipresent, but they were very close to it, you know mm-hmm. thank you. You're welcome. And <laughs> it's now, nice I, to <laughs> and now, tell me a little bit about your research into the the journalist issue. I mean, this is not something that um, that I had down in my notes to ask you, but once you mentioned it, I do remember hearing you speak about it before. And for the benefit of, of our listeners, can you just briefly tell tell me about this cause? Tell us about this cause.
1: Well, um, there were a whole series of uh, newspaper articles. Um, There are some very prominent journalists who I came to really love. For example, Robert Fisk, who writes for the Independent in the UK, who's just an absolutely brilliant uh, writer of things about the Middle East.
0: And that's Robert Fisk.
1: Another uh, journalist is um, Canadian Scott Taylor, used to be a uh, member of the Canadian military and now is the editor of a military magazine. He actually was kidnapped and tortured in Iraq during the war and again um, his writing and and his observations have been absolutely um, incredibly helpful to understand the dynamics of the, the politics involved and the impact on the people.
0: When you hear things like we've heard lately, um, a world leader uh, calling the press the enemy of the people, without getting, I know that we're not here to talk politics, but that must disturb you.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the, the journalism is really, I they call it the fourth estate, and I believe that's because without journalists and even those journalists and, and there are a great many of them who can't be completely uh, at, the, at liberty shall we say to, to say exactly what they'd like to say Yes. but even under those circumstances we simply wouldn't enjoy being part of it or have a democratic country without no no. Sense. we could
0: call it what we want but it would not be and a there's democracy there's a reason
1: why they're being killed and imprisoned at such terrible rates and that's because they try to talk about the truth
0: yes and it's intimidation to others who may follow in their wake as well but um that that's a very sad topic and i thank you for sharing your thoughts on it because i know it's not what you expected to be asked and um it is oh. a it is a sad one so <laughs> uh, but uh, i'll bring you back to to the fun stuff the books With the release of Angel of Eden, the trilogy is complete. Do you have any plans for John to reappear down the road?
1: Well, I always saw the three books as kind of almost more like three volumes of one book in that the trajectory throughout all three of them revolved around a mystery about John Madison's birth Mm -hmm. and the... The mystery is finally answered in the third book, *The Angel of Eden*. Yes. Um, that doesn't mean I don't plan to never write another one. I certainly would never say never, but it's not sort of uh, on the books at the moment. And it wasn't.
0: Um, it wasn't the plan. You never know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I may go back to him. The trilogy was was uh, very well received by by critics, wasn't it? Um, I really encourage our listeners, I I know I shouldn't be asking you to toot your own horn. Sorry about that, Dorothy. That was badly worded. Let me just state it as a fact that the trilogy was very well received, and I highly encourage our listeners to get out and uh, to buy The Witch of Babylon if you haven't already, and and, um, it's a wonderful book, and you will not want to put it down, and you will want to read the other two. I I can pretty much guarantee you... um, now, I want to ask you, Dorothy, about your current work in progress, because I know for a fact that you're working on something that's going to, you know, uh, that's still under the radar a little bit, but can you share anything about it? Oh,
1: gladly. Um, I've taken a little bit of a detour. I'm still writing suspense fiction, but this one's really quite different. It's not historical. Uh, it's about a, a rare white wolf, that is being tracked through the Adirondacks by three trophy hunters. The wolf was raised in captivity, specifically intended for what we call a canned hunt. And it has escaped, but it must learn how to be wild again in order to escape the hunters. So that's sort of the core of the story that I have. Sounds French from historical thrillers to canine thrillers.
0: <laughs> it sounds wonderful, and I mean, there is, there is a place for that because that's been really underdone lately. That used to be a really grand, um, a really grand genre of fiction at one time, and um, that's
1: very true. In fact, I grew up on so many of those books. Yes, Lad of Sunnybrook Farm. Uh-huh, uh huh. Renton. Uh-huh. T- I mean, yes. there were so many wonderful wonderful. I'm really glad Uh, you've done this. And
0: I can't wait to see it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Born Free, The Call of the Wild. Yeah. 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 All of them. I
1: think there's a really, really large audience for that. And I think those books are becoming quite popular again.
0: Yes. Yes. People want to dip their toes back into that kind of, that part of ourselves that we've never really lost, but it's been kind of submerged, I think. And now you're on the hook for a tip. I'm sorry to do that to you, but I have promised our listeners that every author will share a tip, so you're on the hook. What's the number one tip you'd most want to pass on to new writers?
1: Well, please don't apologize because I like talking about oh. tips more than almost anything else, But I, and I can never confine myself to one. Okay. The first thing I'd say is make sure you know what your goal is when you start to write if you decide that you want to write a novel what is it you want to get out of that not everybody wants to write a best-selling thriller Um, some people for example a gentleman that i did a manuscript evaluation for wrote the novel because he was trying to come to terms with some something in his past that he suffered greatly over. Uh, other people uh, are really uh, happy to have a small publisher who may not have the marketing uh, oomph to uh, turn your book into a big bestseller, but really appreciates a fine quality of writing. So I think it's really important to know what direction you're going in because that will determine an awful lot about what kind of publisher you seek out, or indeed, whether or not you just go and self-publish the book.
0: Yes, yes. or what approach you take to the work itself.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is don't pay attention to all those rules about how to write or what good writing is. And I'll, I'll give you some examples one of the things you hear often is never start a book by talking about the weather. Well, I'm really glad
0: that nobody <laughs> Isn't really that glad a that standard? said
1: that to Lawrence Durrell because then we wouldn't have that magnificent opening to the Alexandria Quartet.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And then another thing you hear is keep description to an absolute minimum. Don't describe. Well, I, I'm glad somebody didn't tell Dickens that.
0: Yes, you know? <laughs> yes, and I, I am a Dickens lover from way back. I mean, whenever I'm asked for my uh, desert, desert island uh, book, it's always Dickens.
1: There is a, one rule, though. I really do have one rule for sure, and that is, don't kill the pet, especially if it's a golden retriever. <laughs>
0: Now you're now you're just being mean Dorothy <laughs>
1: No, I, I'm serious. It's, people really don't like that. I, I know. You can kill the protagonist, but don't kill. Oh, the
0: I pet. know, I know. But you are definitely aiming at my last story. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes, people. I have to tell you, I killed the pet, and he was a golden retriever. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> oh no. Oh my! That's a pretty good ruvo, Dorothy. Only Donna can get away with that. The rest of you don't yeah. do it. Yeah,
1: some people can get away with it, and I'm sure you're one of them.
0: Yes, exactly. I pulled it off. Poor Pet. Now the now you know the the gods of, of fiction are going to get me, and I'll be joining my pet soon. <laughs>
1: well, it's all said in jest. Actually, uh, an author friend of mine. Um, in fact killed the pet in her novel and it was also a golden retriever and her novel's been incredibly well received so
0: there you go i really i go. really
1: say that just to uh add a little bit of humor yes
0: well <laughs> let's put it this way don't kill the pet unless it really really is a genuine part of the story don't do it gratuitously we love our pets and uh no pets were made in the the writing of my last short story even though a fictional pet did die Mm. Dorothy, thank you very much for joining us on Dead to Rights. It's been a real pleasure having you on, and uh, a lot of good material there for people who are interested in what to read next and also for new writers, so thank you. I really appreciate that.
1: Well, thank you very much, Donna. I really um, appreciate you interviewing me. And it's always fun to talk about our books.
0: It is, isn't it? We have to do this more often. (laughs) I'd love to have you back down the road. Would that be okay with you?
1: Oh, of course. That'd be great. Okay, excellent.
0: Well, that was a fantastic interview with DJ McIntosh, Dorothy McIntosh, the author of the Witch of Babylon series. And I hope you've enjoyed hearing her as much as I've enjoyed sharing her with you. We've got a really, really fantastic prize for you uh, for this episode, and that is a copy of The Angel of Eden, which I will send to the listener, or a listener, who goes to our Facebook page, Dead to Rights, and answers the following question. And the question is, what is the name of the protagonist in the Witch of Babylon series? And the answer is, his name is John Madison. Now, if you go to the Facebook page and you answer correctly, your name will be entered for a draw and one listener will receive absolutely free a copy of The Angel of Eden. Thank you very much for joining us. We've really enjoyed being with you and hope you'll join us again next week.